0: Canadians got a snapshot of the country's finances in the fall economic update. It's fuzzy on details, but comes splashed with plenty of red ink. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland unveiled the numbers this week. The COVID pandemic and its effects are very much the target. It will be some tough slogging over the next few years, she admits, Government revenues are down as the feds get set for another round of spending, with the second wave getting a stronger grip. That will pile up our deficit to almost $400 billion. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the financial update and see where it will take us. Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and he joins us now. And Ian, how much does it concern you that deficit could reach $400 billion.
1: Well, it's not, Ed, I am concerned, but it's not, it's not the deficit I'm concerned about. I want to unpack this because mm-hmm. um, I think that um, a, a lot of the commentary uh, by government, obviously trying to spin a good story, and by uh, uh, analysts have, uh, not everyone, but there's been a lot of people sort of missing the point. Yes, $400 billion is a lot of money, and I'm not at all trivializing a $400 billion deficit. Um, but the, the point I want to get at is it's the, it's the sustainability over multiple years. And we can, this is not going to cause the government of Canada to fail. Uh, the government of Canada has a, a fiscal f- firepower, fiscal room. But the question is, for how long is it going to run for? Because every year you run a deficit, it gets added onto the national debt. I mean, debts and deficits are absolutely joined at the, at the hip. Uh, a deficit then gets borrowed and rolled onto and added onto the deficit, uh, the debt. So we're, over, we're, we're going to be, at the end of this year, early next year, we're gonna be well north of a trillion dollars of debt. And that won't go away. And, and so there's that question. Um, uh, you know, How soon can we come back to balance or something much closer to balance? Um, and, 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 and then there's the provinces. So there's two separate issues here. There's the sustainability of the federal government and the sustainability of the provinces. Let's just get it right out there. Even though we're not talking about the provinces, the provinces are in much worse shape. And as the PBO has said, for each of the last three years in their very detailed studies, the finances of the provincial governments of our country are unsustainable in the medium term. And they're unsustainable because the population is rapidly aging. We're going from a 12% of the population over 65 to a quarter. And older people, and I'm one of those people over 65, once you retire, you pay much less taxes. And, of course, the cost of health care goes to the roof. And the stats are very clear on that. That's not an opinion. The chi High statistics are crystal clear that the older you are, the more and more and more you consume per person, uh, which is understandable. The body's wearing out. Um, So why I'm even bringing up the provincial is, is that we know from history, Alberta in the Depression was bailed out by the government of Canada. And when a province right now, as we speak, Newfoundland and Labrador and New Brunswick are insolvent, the bond markets will not buy their bonds. So how are we bailing them out? Well, that would be the government of Canada through the Bank of Canada. So I'm just putting that on the table. And then now let's set it aside. Let's come back to the federal. I'm not one of these people who say that the government is going to you know, fall off the cliff tomorrow morning. Um, but we are if we don't bring it back in relatively uh, fairly rapid time, and I mean in the next two or three years, if we don't get a handle on it, uh, I think that we could be uh, into a fiscal crisis. And, and that's not apocalyptic. David Dodge, the very distinguished former governor of the Bank Canada and former deputy minister of finance and former deputy minister of Health Canada, has said so too, as has Don Drummond and two very distinguished journalists from the Globe and Mail in the last 48 hours, 72 hours, I'm referring to John Ibbotson and now Andrew Coyne, have also raised the same fears. I've been saying it in my media interviews. And the problem, again, is not a one-off deficit of $400 billion. That's not a problem. The problem is, is, is that we are running up, we're adding to the national debt, $400 billion this year, and it does not appear that there's a plan to come to bring it back down to what I would consider reasonable levels. The throne speech had a, a, a remarkable shopping list of gargantuan programs. I mean, gargantuanly expensive uh, programs that were going to cost enormous amounts. Uh, universal pharmacare, care, universal daycare, uh, universal um, uh, guaranteed annual income. Uh, these are programs that are just massively expensive. And, and so I'm saying, my goodness me, uh, you know, it's one thing to have a deficit for $400 billion one year or maybe two years. Mm-hmm. That's still, $400 billion for two years is $800 billion. That's almost a trillion dollars on top of. And, and the, but w- as we go forward for the next literally 40, 50 years in all the Western countries, including Canada, we are going to be having, uh, facing much slower GDP. And I know there's some people who say, I don't want to talk about GDP, it's not all about economics. Well, let's put this into plain English. A reduced GDP means reduced revenues flowing in to the government of Canada, reduced revenues flowing into the provincial governments and to the cities for which we use to pay our social programs, for which we use to pay our health care. So when people say, oh, I don't want to talk about GDP, well, it's going to have a real impact for the next third to a half a century, the reduced growth rate caused by aging. And COVID did not bring the aging crisis to an end. COVID will go away. There will be a vaccine. I'm not predicting when. I have no idea. Don't pretend to. But it will go away, whether this year, next year, the year after, it will go away. And we're going to be left with vastly deeper indebtedness, and an aging population where healthcare is going through the roof. And we have right now two provinces that cannot even uh, fund or finance their own government. And, that, and, and it, it will get worse. So the long-term prognosis, it's not the immediate problem. It's the medium and longer term why it's so important we get our house back into order. And if we don't, we're going to be approaching within three years, not 10 or 20, within three years, we're going to be approaching the federal debt to GDP that Mr. Kretsch and, uh, and Paul Martin faced in 1995 that led to the largest downsizing after they met the bond market people in New York City who told them that we were becoming too high risk and they mm-hmm. weren't going to buy our bonds anymore.
0: Now,
1: so it, it, that's the problem. It's, it's, the, it's not the deficit per se. It's the it's the, it's the medium-long-term outlook that we're putting running up these gargantuan deficits on top of the situation that we're facing, which is a rapidly aging demography and a much slower economy that's going to yield lower, not bigger, Revenues, tax revenues to governments that they use to fund existing programs at a very time when uh, healthcare and other related programs are going to go up as the revenues are going down. That and then one more quick point, Ed. Sure. Because this is if I can just get the point out about interest rates, or did you mm-hmm. want to stop and ask? No, me no, keep question? going, keep going. Okay, I'll just get this out there. There is this belief out there in Ottawa that uh, down interest rates, don't worry, they're not going to go up. I've done re- quite a bit of research on this in the last several months because I know, as a former banker, that these rates are unprecedented. But, okay, what does that mean? So, well, I went and looked up a paper from the Bank of England by a very distinguished research economist, and they tracked interest rates. They actually reconstructed interest rates back to the 1300s up to the present. And they found that these interest rates of the last 15 years, 20 years, have never been achieved. Uh, Such low levels have never, ever been achieved in 700 years. That's how anomalous and unusual it is. So then I thought, okay, well, maybe that's England, you know, and UK. So I went and looked up the Federal Reserve to see if they'd done similar research. They did. They went back 500 years. They went back to the 1600s in, in, in North America, in the U.S. And same thing. They found that rates had never, ever, 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 ever been this low. Now people are saying, hey, the last 15 years is normal. It's not normal. It's anomalous. And it's not going to remain. Now, there's a very distinguished guy in England, Charles Goodhart, who was many years at the Bank of England advising governors. And then he went off to the London School of Economics, where he became one of the leading authorities on monetary policy. He has a brand new book out. I think it's called the Great Demographic Reversal, and he argues the last 20 years of unprecedented low interest rates were due to non-repeatable events that are coming to an end. One was the boomers around the world were in their peak earning years and were generating huge amounts of savings, and savings, finances, debt, corporate debt, personal debt, government debt. Secondly... China went from a truly command-and-control economy, they opened up to the West, and millions and millions of workers came onto the labor market that suppressed wages, as well as the Soviet Union collapsed, and there, hundreds of millions of workers came in. And so that drove down wages, and, it, uh, the, and because of the youth of the—we uh, the, were much younger on average then, and the boomers uh, generating huge amounts of savings, it created a savings glut. And the savings glut drove down interest rates. Now, Professor Goodhart is saying these are coming to an end. There's no new China entering the labor markets around the world that's going to replace, have, the, have the same shock to labor. And so he's predicting inflation is going to be going up over the next 3, 5, 10 years. Wages are going to be going up because there's going to be massive labor shortages because of the aging, mm-hmm. and the boomers are going to start spending their savings in their senior years because it's very expensive when you get older because you got to pay for all kinds of procedures and health that is not covered under public health care and, of course, long-term care homes, nursing homes, and that sort of thing. So he's predicting a savings glut is going to turn into a savings shortage in the world, not just Canada. He's not even talking about Canada. and. And at the very same time that all these governments are spending unprecedented amounts of money and going deeply into debt, and so the whole thing is going to shift or flip. And so this is going to drive up interest rates. He's not talking to 20%. I've actually seen him in interviews saying somewhere in the 5, 6, 7%. But that's going to be a massive shock to all of us to go from a quarter of one point to five or six or seven points.
0: Ian Lee is joining us on the Unpublished Face with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University as we talk about the fall federal economic update. And uh, now you had mentioned a couple of a couple of programs. Uh, let's talk about just one that got a lot of attention, the National Child Care Program. No details, but but we've heard this before. Right. And they, they right. say this is this is a job creation. Do you see this as a job creation and can it aid in the economic recovery?
1: Uh, Yes and no. Again, I don't Mm -hmm. want to. I have much more nuanced positions on these. Um, uh, uh, My analysis is grounded in the nuance that, yes, we do need daycare, childcare for low income and people of modest incomes who cannot afford it. And they, by the way, the stats are very clear. They're the people that have been um, affected most negatively by COVID. Yes. It wasn't university professors. We didn't get laid off. We didn't have our salaries cut. People in the public service, you know, Hmm. at finance Canada, didn't get laid off and sent home and had their salaries cut to zero. It was people where people that worked in restaurants and tourism and airlines, travel accommodation. These are relatively much lower paid people. And they've lost their wages. They've lost their jobs. And so we need to have a targeted response, which is not what the government's advocating. They want a universal daycare program to give free daycare to everybody, including professors who have high incomes and to public servants who have high incomes and medical doctors. It's the same argument I'm opposed to. I'm opposed to universal pharmacare. We need targeted pharmacare, targeted daycare to target those who need help, not give it to privileged People who are high income, who live in the Glebe or in Rosedale in Toronto, and the wealthiest postal codes in Canada, who are living in $2 million homes, they do not need free daycare. They do not need free Mm -hmm. drugs. And so we can start addressing this deficit by being much more surgical with our social programs and saying that you're not going to get it unless you are, I would say the same thing with child benefits. You know, that should be clawed back above a certain level, and there's ample precedent. We don't give EI to anybody. We give it only to people who lost their job. That's targeted. Social welfare is targeted. It's not given indiscriminately to anybody. Subsidized housing is targeted to those who need it. And, uh, I mean, even OAS is now targeted because we clawed back probably too high at, 100. And I think it's 117 or 120,000, probably should claw it back at 60. But the point is, the precedent was set by Paul Martin. He made it into a targeted social program. And I think we've got it, with the sole exception of health care itself, and I'm talking doctors and hospitals, we should be looking at every other social program with a fine-tooth comb to say, look, we're going to deliver this very targeted and surgically to those who need help, not people who don't need help.
0: The Fed's also talk about taxing digital services, the Netflix the Netflix tax, so to speak. Will it bring in enough? Will right. it help the industry? No,
1: no, no, it won't. I mean, I don't, Sam, I, mm-hmm. I, I support the, the view. I mean, the, you know, the principle of the, uh, the famous Carter Royal Commission on Taxation in 1972 that very famously said, a buck is a buck is a buck. And uh, in other words, you should be paying, have a level playing field. If I have to pay sales tax on my Bell phone bill, which I do, and I pay it on my other bills in Canada, and when I go to the store, I pay HST, everyone knows that, uh, why should they get a pass? Um, they're providing services. The HST applies to all goods and services. So it should apply, even though I'm not going to be jumping up and down with enthusiasm paying my Netflix bill, which I do have, uh, or my Amazon Prime. Um, Nonetheless, and, you know, tax fairness and equity, they they should be paying it. But anybody who thinks this is going to solve the problem any more than, quote, taxing the rich, I just want to throw a metric out there for everybody to understand. A 2% increase in the HST generates approximately $25 billion dollars. Now in ordinary times, twenty five billion dollars was a lot of money. When you're talking a deficit of four hundred billion, twenty five $25 billion is a, a drop mm-hmm. in the proverbial ocean. It's not gonna come close. That's why we've got to I, I do believe, and we haven't talked about this yet. I, I just and, and the former clerk of the Privy Council. Who just stepped down, what, six months ago, was quoted the citizen a short time ago. He says, basically said, anyone who thinks that we're going to be able to get back to anything close to balance without cuts is dreaming. He didn't put it so crassly or bluntly. Mm-hmm. But I believe that downsizing or cutting is going to be, have to be a part of the response. And I'm talking post-COVID, once we're out of COVID, crisis. Once the vaccine has been rolled out and we're all vaccinated, I'm talking roughly a year from now, I presume, I don't know, but let's say it's a year from now. I think that downsizing is going to have to be a significant part of the solution. We cannot tax everybody enough to get out of the ditch. Right. So maybe there'll be some tax and we're already a pretty heavily taxed nation, but mm-hmm. I'm not saying we can't do more taxation, but I think that there's going to have to be, um, there's going to have to be, I hate to use the word austerity, I would just use plain old fashioned English. We're going to have to go through the government of Canada as we did in 1995. And you know, separate all spending into three categories: absolutely essential spending, nice to have spending, and spending that's just not even doing anything valuable or productive. And, we, and so that goes on the chopping block. But out of uh, remember w- one more quick point, Ed. Mm-hmm. When people, everyone says, okay, the deficit's 400 billion, so they they assume, okay, the government Canada is spending 400 billion. No, it's spending the 350 billion of revenues it was bringing in. And it went $400 billion in the, in the hole. So overnight, we went to $700 billion of spending. That's not sustainable year after year after year indefinitely into the future. So a lot of that spending has to be cut back. Now, a lot of it will disappear as people return to work and don't need SERB um, or EI or whatever. So a good chunk of that will disappear. It'll, it'll, it'll stop being paid out because people have returned to work. But where, the, where I am concerned is that the government in the Throne Speech wanted to introduce all kinds of new universal social programs that collectively would cancel out all that money that's going to be saved by people returning to work. In other words, building in a structural deficit of somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion a year, which I do not believe, and David Dodge doesn't believe, and others do not believe, is sustainable and will lead to a fiscal crisis in the near future. I don't mean 10 or 20 years from now. Two, three, four, five years from now.
0: Ian, I want to thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Ed. Thank you very much.
0: Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. This fall economic update has been described as a feminist agenda. Women by far have been left behind in the economy when it comes to the pandemic. David McDonald is, is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, And he joins us now. And David, this comes with investment now, but how clear is the long-term picture?
2: Well, this fiscal update um, really doesn't provide a lot of spending guidance for future years. What it really does is it updates the accounting um, from the programs uh, that we knew of in July, in the July snapshot, but as well, all the programs that have been announced since July, which have yet to be included in a, in a financial statement like, the, like this fall fiscal update. Now, um, in July, particularly the personal income tax revenue numbers were fairly pessimistic. Um, and several of the, the, uh, the, uptake, the estimates of uptake on several of the business programs were fairly optimistic. Um, And so we've got some updates now on on those programs and personal income taxes. The net result of that is that there was more fiscal room, in essence. But there have been a lot of programs announced since July, uh, notably the extension uh, of the CERB into the the CRB, its replacement programs, as well as the uh, changes to employment insurance, among others. And so this fiscal statement really Takes all of those announcements we've seen over the course of the fall that didn't necessarily have the full budget treatment, where you knew where the money was, uh, you know, which years the money was being spent in, over how many years, and so on, um, and puts that lays that all out. And so we've got a really good detail now of all the programs that are in play uh, up up basically until the end of November. Um, the fiscal update does uh, have. Some new large investments, but they're relatively small in the grand scheme of things uh, They focus a limited amount on child care and a new long term care uh, fund as well as a top up to the Canada child benefit. Those are all new announcements um, but really uh what we are seeing towards the future we we are seeing estimates of of expenditure uh, revenue deficits, but what we're not seeing is any large new expenditure plans so the in this fiscal statement uh, the federal government has said that they have They want to spend $70 to $100 billion on top of what's already booked, and they want to do that over the next three years. And there's no details on that. And so what I expect to happen is between now and uh, when the actual budget comes down in uh, March or April that uh, the $20 billion roughly that's uh, scheduled for, for the end of this fiscal year, which runs up until uh, March 31st, we'll see you know, billion-dollar announcements roughly every week or two coming out via press releases announced by the Prime Minister. And it will really only be when the budget is released that we'll get to see plans, the bigger long-term plans uh, for the next two years.
0: Now, also, uh, the Finance Minister was talking about overhauling Canada's tax system. Uh, and you are... Very much in support of that. How is it broken?
2: Well, the pieces—the pieces of the fiscal update um, are, in essence, putting GST on uh, several companies that weren't charging mm. GST before. Um, now, it basically, basically, it's a Netflix tax and Amazon tax and Airbnb mm. tax. Although it's, it's, you know, it's. Right. It's pitched towards the broader categories in which those companies exist. Uh, but they don't necessarily pay GST. And what that means is that Canadian competitors, so if you're a you know, main street business, you, you, know, you were shut down, you're trying to get your, your wares online, selling them online, you do have to charge GST and your provincial sales tax. But you're competing against Amazon, who doesn't? Hmm. Um, which, which puts uh, Canadian companies at a pretty distinct disadvantage. And this is true across all of these categories. Now, several of the provinces are already charging some of these corporate giants, uh, making them charge um, provincial sales tax, but the federal government now is, is going to force them to charge um, uh, GST, the federal sales tax. Um, the other piece too that's, that's come up here is an attempt um, for particularly uh, you know, digital giants mm-hmm. um, to pay more in corporate income taxes now, this isn't a very worked out concept. I mean, there are some numbers in the budget. I'm not sure how they got them because there's no actual plan, but there does seem to be some commitment to try to get at a corporate tax shifting, which is where companies say, oh, no, we actually made nothing in Canada. We made all of our money in Bermuda. And you say, well, there's no operations in Bermuda. And they say, well, that's where you know that's where mm-hmm. we parked all of our trademarks. And so, therefore, we don't have to pay tax in Canada. We're going to pay it in Bermuda. Oh, and the tax rate in Bermuda is 0%. Yes. Um, and so to try to get at some of that, um, this isn't a large scale measure. It's quite specific, and there isn't a lot of details. I expect we'll probably see more details in the in the um, in the updates, or sorry, in the in the budget itself in March. Um, I mean, it's positive they're looking at this, but it, it's quite limited in scale at this point.
0: David McDonald is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe, Senior Economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, as we talk about the fall federal economic update. And, uh, David, this also comes with a big increase in debt. uh, And we are paying lower interest rates, but, uh, you know, if something, if they do rise, what happens?
2: What's incredible is not only are we paying lower interest rate uh, on a higher debt, we're paying a, a lower aggregate amount of interest and so it's as if you uh you know doubled the size of your house uh but you're paying 20% less in monthly uh you know in your monthly mm. mortgage payment like that that's actually what's happening federally and so it's it's actually pretty incredible um to see us paying you know having uh, substantially larger debt but we're actually paying less on a, on an annual basis to maintain that debt we've actually never paid this little in the history of Canada um, to, to carry federal government debt. Um, now, the, the issue of, you know, potentially interest rates could go up. Um, I, I don't see that happening. And the reason why is because the household and the corporate sector are actually in worse state in terms of indebtedness than the federal government. And interest rates don't just affect the federal government. They affect everybody who's got uh, a loan out, a mortgage out, a, you know, you've got a, uh, corporate bonds and that sort of thing. These are all related in terms of what people pay. And so if you were ever to see big increases in in federal government debt, you would have long since bankrupted households and the corporate sector. Uh, And so I expect that we're actually in for a new new long-term trend of very low interest rates, potentially going towards uh, what's happening in Europe. Um, We're certainly seeing negative real interest rates on on federal government debt. We may well be moving to negative mortgage rates, which is something that we've actually seen uh, in Europe.
0: Now the deficit 300 it were pegged at around a 382 billion dollars but you're not concerned because you feel that means there's an equal surplus of that amount in the economy. Is that true?
2: Well, that's it's an accounting concept. So if okay. I'm in deficit, somebody else is in surplus. That's it's just that is this a straightforward accounting concept. It's not an opinion. It's just, you know, if I give you $5, I'm out $5, you're up $5. I mean that's that's what a deficit means. Um, now we we don't often look at uh, you know, a deficit, even in the aggregate, means that uh, people have paid less in taxes than they received in transfers and services. And so the question is, well, who is receiving those extra transfers and services and not paying that amount in taxes? I mean, that's that's another way of looking at surplus and deficit. Okay. And so across all the sectors in the Canadian economy, if you add up all their deficits and surpluses, it works out to zero, because uh, that's what a deficit and surplus means. It means someone's up some, someone's down some. Now. In the latest um, System of National Accounts reporting, um, you can actually look and say, okay, so the feds have this big deficit. Um, that, this was this was through to till the end of June. So the feds have incurred this big deficit at the start of the year, um, You know, doing all these COVID measures, uh, transferring all this money through CERB and so on. Where did the money go? Who, created, who, who got the surplus? Um, and it was almost entirely individuals or households that got the surplus. So it could have gone to corporate profits. I mean, it could have gone to to uh not you know it could have gone to to imports uh it's another way you can uh you know money can leave the country or leave the federal government's pockets um that's not what happened uh, it's largely gone to individuals a small amount has gone to cities um, where cities have seen some benefit from this federal money um the provinces are roughly the same as where they were before that's generally what you want to see i mean what you don't want to see is all that money going out the door in imports or something like that then you know, a federal government deficit does not stay within the Canadian economy. It escapes and goes to somebody else. You know, maybe it's China who's making money. Um, certainly the latest GDP numbers in the third quarter are somewhat concerning because we actually did see a fairly big increase in in imports uh, not made up by exports. And that is concerning because then you see, in essence, federal government deficits becoming not a Canadian surplus. they you know, an American or a Chinese surplus. Uh, but to date, it's been fairly focused. And that, I mean, that's what you'd expect. So the CERB is the primary reason why we're having such a big uh, deficit CERB, as well as the its extension through EI and the CRB programs.
0: Did climate change get any attention?
2: Not much. I mean, in terms of new expenditures, it was fairly limited. Um, you know, the the carbon tax itself was put on hold in some provinces uh, because of the pandemic. So I think that that's very much a a backburner issue for the time being. Um, We'll see in a rebuilding effort what type of role it will play. I mean, at present, the provinces in particular, when we look at their pandemic response plans, particularly the Western provinces have been much more focused on infrastructure uh, as an important part of the recovery. Uh, The federal government hasn't by and large, been interested in infrastructure thus far. They've been much more focused on emergency transfers to the provinces for healthcare, uh, as well as to, you know, people who become unemployed or businesses through various means. So I suspect that as we start to get a vaccine, the vaccine starts to roll out, uh, you know, in the new year, we cover the the populations that are at most risk. And then we see a budget in March and April uh, that looks towards a rebuilding effort. Then I think we'll see more of a focus potentially on Mm. green infrastructure and things of that that nature in the 21-22 fiscal year.
0: How much does a safe and effective vaccine available quickly change the direction of the federal financial plans?
2: They are inextricably linked. So the deficit that we incur is inextricably linked to the public health emergency. So the longer it drags out, the more the federal government has to sustain people who are unemployed, the more it has to sustain businesses that are shut down or, or mostly shut down or have seen big decreases in in uh, in their revenue. Um, this is true federally, but it's also true provincially. Um, the quicker we can get the public health emergency under control, On the one hand, uh, through public health measures that stops the spread, but on the other hand, through vaccination, the quicker we will see deficits decline because we're not seeing huge expenditures supporting people and businesses. Um, But also, we can see increased revenue as those people and businesses go back to work.
0: David, thanks so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And that leads to our unpublished.vote question. Of the announcements in the fall economic update, which do you feel will help Canadians the most? A tax on digital services? National child care program? Overhaul the tax system? $1 billion in long-term care? Or none of the above? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Ian Lee of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Café. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.